0: Morning, everyone. Welcome. I love uh, this time of year. Um, I always I'll go shopping sometimes, and, and I'm always looking for those good gifts, and, and often uh, they deal around with some of you. And so I'll find something, I'm like, oh, that would be perfect for this person. And some of you look worried. Uh, you remember last year. And uh, one of the things coming out is uh, obviously if you go shopping, you can't miss all the Star Wars things. And uh, that's going to be quite an experience, new movie coming out, and if you follow the franchise, you know you know that this is highly anticipated, and, and some of you are probably pretty excited about it. I found out someone in our congregation who likes Star Wars, Mark Walters. And I'm concerned that Mark doesn't, I want him to enjoy this experience. I want him to go to the movie and uh, just enjoy the whole thing. And so, Mark, I got something for you. It's going to help you enjoy this experience. Come here and claim your your spoils here. And uh, Darth Vader body wash, I think, is just what's going to help you enjoy this experience. So enjoy it and enjoy the movie. And so, good, I got you covered. Tracy. Thought of you big time. Tracy McConkie is uh, my favorite chiropractor. Always watching out, probably several of you go, he's always watching out for your back and making sure you feel better, you're in alignment, and, and so in a sense, he's got your back, but I'm concerned who's got his. Tracy, I want you to know I've got it. I've got your back, okay? And so, if you see this, this is a great shirt. This had you written all over it. Enjoy it. Know with great confidence, watching out for you. Those are, it's fun, fun to shop, it's fun to find the gifts, and uh, especially when you think you got the perfect one, but Christmas season's daunting when you try to preach because you're talking about what Paul says is the indescribable gift. How do you describe the indescribable? And I, and I don't, I just, we just surrender to scripture and we do what we sing, oh come let us adore him, and we adore an indescribable gift. It's that gift I want to talk about this morning some more. Be kind of build off a little bit about last week. If you go to Luke chapter 2, verse 30 through 35, we're going to read a little bit about this indescribable gift. Simeon takes Christ his dedication, you could say. In his arms, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts, may be revealed. Let's pray. Jesus, our prayer is simple this morning. We want to see you. We want to see you as you really are. And might what you cause us to see also cause us to bow down and worship you. Create in us, God, a deeper appreciation of who you are. A deeper worship. Of you, our indescribable gift. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you've ever gone swimming, I'm not a big fan of water. I never really grew up swimming much, and so I get a little nervous in it. Um, but if you need a lifeguard, there's, there's some things you really hope a lifeguard can do. There's a couple things you like, would really like, really need about a lifeguard. One is what makes a good lifeguard isn't whether they're kind or talented or funny. I don't care about those things. When I need a lifeguard and I'm drowning, I I need help from someone who meets two criteria. I I really want a lifeguard to have these two criteria. One, they must be willing to rescue me. It doesn't help me a lot if a lifeguard's watching me drown and says, Ah, not today. That doesn't help me. We need a lifeguard who's willing to rescue us. But we also need a second qualification. They need to be able to rescue us. Doesn't do me a lot of good if someone says, Boy, I'd love to help you. I just don't know how. Not a really good lifeguard. Not a lot of hope there. You see, only a person who can master the water can become a savior, so to speak, or a rescuer. A rescuer cannot be a person who himself needs rescuing. That doesn't help us either. There's going to be two of us drowning if there's a person next to me who's not able to swim who also is drowning. The Bible teaches an experience I think would confirm that we are sinners separated from God. And our greatest need is to be forgiven, reconciled to God, rescued from the presence, the power, and the penalty of sin. And for that, we need a Savior, we need a Rescuer. We need one who's willing, and we need one who's able. And only a Savior who meets those qualifications is able to save. And at this point, Christianity and all other religions part ways. Let's look at just a couple passages about Jesus, Luke 2.11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior... Was Christ the Lord. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 21 Mary, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus revealed his job description when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. We have his identity, the Savior is the Lord. We have his purpose, he came to save. And we have his job description to seek and to save those who need saving. And so those three verses kind of lay it all out that Jesus claims to be the rescuer, the ultimate savior of the world. And so let's look at Jesus. Let's look at this extraordinary birth. And ask the question, as we look at all the other gods and all the other religions, all that's taught, is anybody qualified to save? Let's consider a couple things because we live in a pluralistic world and there's always a search for a qualified Savior. Now remember, they must be willing and able to rescue us from sin. And to do that, we need a sinless Savior. It doesn't help us to have someone else drowning in sin next to us to try to save us from that which they need saving. We need a sinless Savior. A perfect Savior. Well, the Hindu Swami... Any of the teacher, their teachers claimed sinlessness, did they? No. As a matter of fact, they'd say anyone who claims sinlessness cannot be a Hindu. They don't meet the qualifications. They don't help us. Buddha, did he ever claim sinlessness? No. He found a group of aesthetics, preached to them, taught, taught that all outward things were distractions. He sought enlightenment. A life of discipline, that's what he sought out. He died that way. No sinlessness here. He pointed people to a noble eightfold path, but he offered nothing himself. Not a lot of help there. The Bahayullah claimed a revelation from God that was more complete than those who came before him. He thought his writings were more perfect, (laughs) figure that one out, than the others, but he never claimed sinlessness. He dare not claim sinlessness. Confucius and Confucianism, Confucianism, Confucius said this as to a divine being or even a good man: Far be it for me to make any such claim. He's got no help for us. He's not qualified. Representatives from the Muslim faith know from the Quran: the Prophet Muhammad admitted he was in need of forgiveness. Muslims agree. There's no sinlessness here. There's no perfection here. The Muslim faith has no one qualified to save. The Dalai Lama, also called His Holiness, believed to be the 14th reincarnation from Buddha, the Tibetan Buddhist, in an interview, the Holiness, as he's called, said, I'm not the best Dalai Lama there ever was, but I'm not the worst either. Men may call him his holiness, but he knows better. He offers nothing to us. He's not qualified to be a Savior to save you and I from our drowning in sin. He's a sinner like the rest of us. Understandably, none of the religi- religious leaders ever claimed to be Savior. Their prophets may have showed them the way, but they made no pretense to be able to personally forgive sins. They couldn't take us where we need to go. question then is, why do we need a sinless Savior? How can, and how can I trust someone who's in the same predicament as I, in the murky water of human depravity, and bring me to God? I need a perfect Savior. Is there one? Well, we know from celebrating Christmas that Christ came. He claimed to be Savior. We just read that. That was His claim. I'm the Savior of the world. I came to seek and save the lost. For to you is born in the city of David a Savior. Well, what are the qualifications of Christ? 1 Peter 2.22, there's a man who walked with Jesus for three years. Ate with him. Laughed with him. They slept on the same ground. They ate around the same campfire. He saw the man's life in and out. Private. Saw it in personal. What did he have to say about him? 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin Nor is any deceit found in his mouth. Think about that. Think about your mouth and your speech. No deceit. No sin. That's what Peter's testimony was. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul testifies, He who knew no sin, no sin, became sin for us. John 8.46, Jesus asked a question to his attackers, Can anyone prove me guilty of sin? It was quiet. Nobody could. Hebrews 4.15 He was tempted in all things, yet was without sin. So the testimony of Jesus, testimony of his disciple, testimony of Scripture is this man, Jesus, was perfect. Sinless. Qualified. Qualified to save you and I. This baby born in Bethlehem it was perfect. All moms say it, i got a perfect baby. Look how perfect. But only Mary was accurate. That baby, that baby born in Bethlehem, was perfect. Now, as far as you and I in our situation, a Savior needed to meet three requirements. He had to be been born a male, born of a woman, as predicted in Genesis 3.15. To fulfill that prophecy... He had to be been born a male, born of a woman. He had to become one of us, drowning in sin, to redeem us. He had to represent us in all aspects. No angel could have pulled it off. Second, he had to be sinless in order to have the perfections that God demands. God is perfect. We're not. We're drowning. In order for us to have a relationship with a perfect God, we need a perfect sacrifice to make us holy in His sight. Because as sinners, we can't pay for our sins, much less the sins of someone else. And whether a sacrifice offered is acceptable, whether it's perfect, is a key issue. For forgiveness of sins, it took a holy sacrifice to bear sin. Third, the Savior also had to be God. So it could be said that God himself undertook this rescue mission to reconcile humanity. Some unique qualifications, unique credentials. So I love uh, Mark Schultz. He's one of my favorite artists, if not my favorite. And and on my bucket list was to was to go hear him live in concert. And so I got to went to Life Fest, Mark Schultz on the stage, and I wanted to go on the stage. I wanted to be one of them groupies in the back, meet him, yo know, and a hey, go get him, Mark, and, you know, and, and that type of thing. But I I couldn't go on the backstage because I didn't have something. Credentials. I couldn't get near him. I got as close as I could in the mosh pit, as mosh pit as you get for Mark Schultz. And, uh, and and so there I am, and, uh, and loving the concert, but I, I I can't get close to him. He's way he's up there, kind of up on the stage. I needed credentials to get close. But something happened at Life Fest. Mark Schultz came off the stage and went to a tent. I got to talk with him, got my picture with him, my family and Mark Schultz, autographed picture. And so I didn't have credentials. What would it take for me to be able to get close to Mark Schultz? He had to come down. He had to come down. And he drew near to me. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God. He had to be God so it could be said he he himself, God, undertook the rescue mission. He came down. He came near because I couldn't come up. And that's the beauty of Christmas message. Now, there's been a thought that maybe Christ could have been born a child, and then maybe later in his life, he could be infused with some kind of divine nature. Maybe like at his baptism. So he's born a normal child and kind of lived as a normal child, sinful, but later got infused with power. Some believe that. It's suggested, but the theory poses a huge problem. Which is, what would have happened to the sins he committed before that time? Or prior to this transformation? You see, Christ didn't become someone different. The child who was born in Bethlehem was perfect. Qualified to be the Savior of the world. Something no other religion no other founder ever claimed, as I read before. Simply put, he's willing and he's able. If salvation is to be the Lord, he had to provide the very sacrifice he demanded. Now what's the doctrinal importance of all this? Well, it shows certainly, first of all, salvation is ultimately from the Lord. Just as God promised that the Christ would ultimately destroy the serpent, So God brought it about by His own power. It was not by human effort. Virgin birth shows salvation ultimately comes from the Lord. Two, the virgin birth made possible a uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. This was a means God used to send His Son into the world to save it. You see, He's qualified to save sinners because He united humanity. In deity. Of course, no one else could ever do that. Our eternal future rests on the truth that the baby born in Bethlehem is holy. Which leads us to a third issue of doctrinal importance. Virgin birth also makes Christ true humanity without inherited sin. Luke 1, 34-35 talks about this. Luke chapter one, verse 34 through 35. Mary said to the angel, "How can this be since I am a virgin?" The angel answered and said to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The child would be holy." That's why I think I like the song "O Holy Night, my favorite Christmas song so much. just kind of a, a, a moment of what it must have been like to be in the presence of that child, the Holy child, the Savior of the world. If we were to look at cursory of Scripture, we'd come to the realization that when Adam sinned, the whole human race was involved. Not only did all sin in Adam, we're all sinners by nature. And the legal guilt, the moral corruption that belongs to human beings did not belong to Christ. He was perfect. Yet he was man. Amazing. And Luke 1.35 connects the conception by the Holy Spirit with the holiness and the moral purity of Christ. But then I have to ask, why would God create such an involved process? Why? I mean, couldn't it have been a little easier? <laughs> well, Erwin Lutzer had an interesting quote. He said, among the genetic inheritances that would have come from two human parents is the imperfection that is part of the human condition, Sin. As Christians, we believe that we are fallen creatures. That means that we came, come into the world with a capacity for corruption built into us. If Jesus had entered the world through natural human reproduction, he would have simply been one more child of this fallen world. Therefore, God had to choose another route. And he did. If he was to use a, a good human father and mother, the result would be all humanity, sinful humanity, and no deity. If he was to create a being like an angel, with no father or mother, be spiritual but no humanity, he couldn't pay for the sins of the world. If he was to deposit his spirit into another's body, it presents us with a problem. It presents the perfect sacrifice, the Savior, from being fully uh, human and fully divine. But to miraculously conceive a baby within a virgin which would produce a child fully divine, perfect and sinless, yet fully human. Ah, that comes from the mind of God. That's a plan set in eternity. Deity was needed, because only God could carry the full weight of our sin. Only He's qualified to be Savior. No man could ever save man. You and I are drowning. It's only the drowning who need Someone, and is required for someone who's willing and able to save them. I grew up in a Catholic church, and I have some good friends, and so I'm not here to put anybody down. I just remember going into confessional. And I was told, go to the confessional and confess your sins, and the priest will forgive you. I didn't know much about Jesus at all, but the thought did kind of cross my mind. I I never did anything to this guy. I mean, I'm going to see a complete stranger, and I can't even look at him i got talk in this box, and I'm like, I'm not going to confess my sin to him. And, and so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll downsize it. So if I stole something, I'm going to steal something not quite as bad. That's what I'm going to confess to. And so if I stole something from the store, I'd come to the priest and said, I stole some cookies from the cookie jar. So I kind of downsized my sin. And, uh, but I also kind of left with the reality that that didn't do anything. And, and the older I got, and when I came to Christ, I realized... The expectation, poor expectation put on this guy to forgive me of my sin it was impossible. No man could forgive us of our sin. It took the perfect man. It took Christ because only he's qualified to be Savior. Because Jesus' birth is intimately tied to every other aspect of his life, he had to be born of a virgin. The virgin birth is the gate through which God stepped into humanity. Matthew 1.18 I'll read again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.34 and 35, which I read earlier, affirms this. The virgin conception was clearly taught. It actually was part of the creeds in the early church. They put it in the creeds so they make sure that it was taught. Because they wanted truth taught. Now we do need to be aware there are Objections to the virgin birth. As we might expect, there'd be some who deny it, who are determined to try to strip Christ of his credentials. And one of the questions I always thought, why? Well, if there's a Savior, it would imply you need saving. And some people aren't ready to confess that. And so instead of confessing you need a Savior, let's try to strip the credentials of the only one qualified to save. And so here's some of the Opposition, some of the prominent thoughts you might run into. Some would say that the accounts were borrowed from mythology. They said that great people always had some kind of supernatural birth attributed to them. Zeus, Hercules, Plato. These mythological stories by pagans. So it asks the question, could pagan mythology have inspired Matthew and Luke to write what they did? To tell the tale of a miraculous conception of Jesus. I mean, we knew that the virgin birth, at least that's what they tell us, the virgin birth tale grew out of pagan polytheism, the belief that there's many gods. And this idea of it being mythology was that the gods involved themselves in sexual relations with women. They were no longer considered virgins. And that they involved this and said, Jesus must have been part of this mythology, we're told. But is it feasible then to say the church borrowed ideas from pagan mythology at its most degrading point, I may add? No, that's ludicrous. Luke was a detailed historian. Even unsaved unbelievers recognized Luke's historical accuracy. How about Matthew? Would Matthew, who followed Jesus, Luke, who had first-hand testimony from those who followed Jesus, would they have borrowed their stories from pagan mythology? Of course not. It's a ridiculous assertion. Then there's other thought. The accounts came from Jewish sources who were scheming. It was a cover up. It was an invented story. The thought being the virgin birth invented was would, was invented because it would preserve then the reputation of Mary. The idea being Mary and Joseph were intimate. Mary got pregnant. It became a scandal. And so stories were invented, people put forth, to cover up the immoral relationship. The problem is it ignores prophecy, ignores careful investigation by Luke, who probably talked directly to Mary. He knew if she'd been lying, so would Matthew have? I'm sure Matthew knew her. Of course Joseph would have known, as would many in Nazareth. And so that holds absolutely no water whatsoever. There's the other thought that accounts have have a hidden meaning. It seems the great quest of liberal theology is to invent a Jesus stripped of deity, stripped of power, stripped of authority. Rudolf Bultmann, 20th century New Testament scholar, he said Jesus is a mere enlightened teacher, the virgin birth is a myth. From the first Presbyterian pulpit, Henry Emerson Fosbick divided the church into two camps. Fundamentalists, he said, were those who believed the virgin birth was historically accurate. He said there was another camp, he called them more enlightened. Christians who were no longer obligated to believe in the virgin birth, but to discard it as not as historical, but it's just kind of a good story. It didn't matter. The old dilemma liberal liberals always had, have had to confront, is a fear. And that after stripping Christ of his. Credentials as a Savior, they're left with nothing worth believing. John Shelby Spung, representing so many, was saying that the virgin birth was never intended to be taken literally, but to inspire faith. And i got to ask a question, faith in what? If you take the virgin birth, there's no hope. There's no Savior. If the accounts are not true, we're only left with man's views. We know how that's worked out for us. Roman Catholic scholar John Dominic Crossan, part of the Radical Jesus Seminar, said the virgin birth was invented theology. Someone went through the Old Testament, he said. They found passages that could possibly interp- be interpreted uh, as speaking to a virginal conception. And they kind of invented this whole thing. Jane Schauberg, in her writing, The Illegitimacy of Jesus, a Feminist Theological Interpretation the Infancy Narratives, you know where this is going, accuses the church of inventing the doctrine in order to subordinate women. She states that the conception of Jesus is a result of rape or an extramarital affair. And in her writing, she turns Mary into a heroine, which is her most basic agenda because she wasn't concerned with the virgin birth, but promoting her feminist agenda. She had no concern for truth. So there are others out there with their voices. But in all the cases, they have their agenda. That's to strip Christ of his credentials, or seek to. To strip him of his power and his authority. But this raises to me a key question. Can you be a Christian, a born-again Christian, and deny the virgin birth? Think about it for a moment. Can you be? I think we'd have to stand up and say a decisive no. Because those who deny the virgin birth reject, A, the authority of Scripture, they deny the supernatural birth of the Savior. They have no way to explain the deity of Christ. And they need to face the fact that a denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as Savior. You're denying that he is the only one qualified. You put him on a shelf with all the other gods, who all, by the way, proclaimed they were sinful. But Jesus never made that proclamation. Disciples who walked to him proclaimed he was perfect from their observation, obviously we know from Scripture's testimony. You see, the Savior who died for the sins was none other than the baby conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. It's the irreducible part of biblical revelation of the work of Christ. True believers stand up unapologetically on authority of God's Word for the virgin birth. It's heresy to deny the sinless birth of Christ. It's heresy. That's why, to me, it's one of the important questions I ask when I baptize someone. Do you believe that Christ came and lived a perfect life? Doctrinally so significant that we understand that. What are the results of the virgin birth? If we think of a larger context of Christ's death and resurrection, we're brought to the realization that the virgin birth is consistent with the rest of Christ's life. We know that prophecy is fulfilled. Isaiah 7.14, Genesis 3.15, Micah 7 prophesied Jesus' identity, his virgin birth, and the location of his birth. Christ fulfilled that prophecy. It's one of the results of the virgin birth. Matter of fact, tucked in Matthew, chapter 1, 16 is amazing to me, evidence to the virgin birth. And we would miss it, and that's why word studies in the Greek are helpful, Matthew 1.16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Underline those words, by whom. Because the word, Greek word for that, is a feminine singular, indicating clearly that Jesus was born of Mary only, and not of Mary and Joseph. It is one of the strongest evidence, I think, of Jesus' virgin birth. You see, back in the Greek, Jewish tradition, I should say, genealogy always was traced back through the father, not the mother. But the Greek word here is a specific gender for a specific reason. By whom, again, is feminine. The point is, he was born of a woman, but he had no human father. It's powerful. And we need to understand that Jesus, the result of the virgin birth, was a a, a prophecy fulfilled, but also a sinless Savior was born. And that's what we have as a result of the virgin birth. We have a qualified Savior, a sinless Savior who's able to save completely. Isaiah 9.6 touches upon this. We'll be bouncing to Galatians 4, but this is powerful. There's careful language the Bible writers used for a reason. Isaiah 9.6, for a child will be born to us but the Son will be given. Isn't that beautiful? The child, the humanity, would be born. But the Son, the deity, was given. That's that, that marrying of humanity and deity. The reason He was not born, He already existed. He entered into this world through Mary's womb. Galatians 4.4 4. God carefully, once again, Wanted us to understand what was going on as much as we could understand it. So we read in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, Apostolo, to be sent among. Born of a woman, born under the law. The Son was sent, the baby was born. Again, we have that perfect picture. God sent forth the Son because He already existed. Born of a woman, because a child was born. So what does this all mean? What's the result of this incarnation? Hebrews seven twenty six through 27 This is so well laid out. Hang on to this when you discuss with those the qualifications of a Savior. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, i.e. Savior. Holy, innocent. Undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. That's beautiful. Christ is sinless. In humanity, he had the holiness we lacked. And he, unlike the other priests, did not have to offer sacrifices for himself, we need the sacrifice. He did not. And His sacrifice was perfect. So only, He only had to offer it once. Any sacrifices we offered, the pr- or early priests did, were tainted by sin. And if we had no Savior in Christ, we'd drown in our sin. We would be unredeemed. But because He's a sinly, sinless Savior, as Hebrews testifies, He's able to save completely, And able to save eternally. Now you understand why Christ is the only way. We understand there's no one else who qualifies. Other religions have prophets, but they cannot have a savior. They have no remedy for sin. They do not have one who personally triumphed over sin. Which brings us to two applications in closing Tools, I hope you had this, got found this morning. To stand on the truth of the virgin birth. But two things we really, really need to take out of here. If we're really going to understand Christmas and celebrate it. Only Jesus is qualified to be Savior. Only He's sinless. Only He's perfect. He stands alone. All the other gods, they claim to be sinful. But there's only one who claimed Perfection sinlessness. There's only one who became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Only He's worthy to be worshipped. Only He's worthy to be adored. And number two, don't miss this. Only those who trust Christ as Savior will be saved. Without reaching out to Christ and asking Him to save you, you have no hope that we sing about. Because only He's qualified to save and only stands to reason. He's the only one who can save you. The only one. That's why we must tell people about Christ. It's not enough to admire Him. It's not enough to study Him. It's not enough to love Jesus for His compassion or even love Him for being a guide. If you don't love Him for sa- as Savior, you don't love Him for the reason He came. That's why He came. And so we can scan the religious horizons, we can go to the library, we can read all about the great teachers founders of religions and history, read not simply what they taught, but what they had to say about themselves. And look. Look for a prophet. Believe me, their names are many. But you're not going to find a Savior. You're not going to find a qualified, sinless Savior. If there were another who claimed sinlessness, boy, I'd be glad to check out his credentials to see how they compare with Christ. But when you mention the requirements of sinlessness, the religious field clears. And only one man standing. Christ. He lives up to His name. There's many teachers. There's many prophets. But brothers and sisters, there's only one Savior. And it's that Savior we adore. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, There's a reason, there's a reason our hearts leap at this truth. There's a testimony within us as believers that you are indeed the only one qualified to save because I think in a lot of our cases we looked elsewhere and we found no help. We just found other drowning people. So we wail helplessly in our sin, in our futility, in our lostness. This morning I pray that deep within the heart and spirit of my brothers and sisters, there welled up deep worship, a deep gratitude, maybe a greater clarity of who you are as our Savior and why you stand alone. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us, for being willing. And thank you, Jesus, for who you are, that you are able to save completely and to save eternally. And Lord, for those in this room who may have never reached out and trusted you as Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have spoken to them this morning. They would see their need, and they'd realize in this moment, at this time, they have a chance, a choice. To trust you alone. Or to continue to go their own way. A way which has no hope. I pray they'd reach out to you. So God, please create in all of us a deeper love and adoration for your person. In the coming days, coming weeks, it would be you we adore, nothing else. And everything else would pale in comparison. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.